everybody. Welcome back to another episode of the Modern Wool Podcast. This podcast is brought to you by Abundant Earth Fiber, where we're sharing the secrets of sustainable small batch wool straight from our mill on Whidbey Island. I'm Lydia Christiansen. Thank you so much for listening. I just want to take a quick second to say thank you to all of you out there who have heard our other episodes and are here for this one. It's been a really long road between this episode and our last one, and I'm so happy that we're here right now together. Thank you. You're listening to episode nine. In this episode, we'll be talking about the deluge of wool that comes around sharing season and some of the other non-knitting yarn kinds of things that you can make with wool. Plus, I'll throw in a few opportunities as I see them for people who are eager to get involved with wool, maybe even professionally. There is one important thing I want to tell you about before we dive in. I cannot begin to imagine all the different ways that we've been asked to adapt over the past couple of years. And there's a complete rainbow of emotions that goes along with that. Some people might be feeling completely exhausted and wiped out. Some people might be feeling guilty about feeling great. Maybe the past couple years have been really good for you. And then other people might be feeling blindingly traumatized in grief and still struggling to find that light at the end of the tunnel, so to speak. We know in this community, there is a strong link between handcraft and self-care. How many times have you heard someone in your fiber community say, or maybe you thought to say yourself, that knitting has saved their lives? Handcraft, especially when working with natural materials, is therapeutic, it's nurturing, and it carves out that time and space in our lives to be with ourselves and with our friends doing something that we love. Even for those of us who are secretly relieved that there's less human contact in the world (laughs) and less obligation to be around people, even for those of us who appreciate that, we've observed our human need to connect with people. We've observed it being taken away And we recognize that it is something that makes us human. And we need to connect with other people in some way. I know I do. Attending daytime craft groups has never really been feasible for someone like me. With work and family responsibilities, it's just not feasible. And let me tell you, my work and family responsibilities have not lessened one bit even through all the changes we've gone through the past couple of years. And the natural adaptation to this is to put more things online, which is what we've seen happen. But I recognize and acknowledge, and I want to say I appreciate those of you out there who might feel this way, attending online events is not for everybody either. Some people prefer the in-person contact and need that. And for sensory people like us, that makes a lot of sense. But for those of us who can't have that in-person meetup, 
we look to online events and communities and social groups to connect. So if you're like me and you're not really ready or able for in-person meetups yet, that's okay. And I have some great news. I've been building a social site. It's an online educational community just for us, bringing together like-minded fiber artists, handcrafters, professionals with a common interest in sustainable small batch wool. In full disclosure, I have a lot to learn about how to run a community like this, but I feel really proud that Alan and I are going to be able to do this using the Mighty Networks platform. And Mighty Networks is a platform that combines online social technology with digital course technology. So we can combine educational features with social features and not be reliant on mega corporations out there dominating the social platforms that you all know about. So this is ours. This is something that we've built, that we're creating, and that we're moderating and now sharing with you. There's no cost or commitment involved. You're welcome right now to go and join or explore the community. It's being hosted at schoolofwool.com. So that's what I'm calling it, School of Wool, and you're welcome to come check it out, and we'd love to have you. And we're over there chatting about stuff, and once this podcast drops, I'll be there talking about this episode. If you have any questions or follow-up comments or stories, that's where I'll be, and I want to hear everything you have to say. That's schoolofwool.com, and let's see where that community might take us. Let's see what kind of events we can pull together and share with one another online in a digital format. And like I said, hey, if that's not for you, I totally understand and respect that. It's not for everybody. But it's something I need. And I'm betting I'm not the only one. So I hope I get to see you over there. Schoolofwool.com. Right now in the Pacific Northwest, winter is saying goodbye and spring is about to break. We have moments where the sun is warm and shining and it feels like it's already here. And then hail and wind and rain. And March just has a hard time letting go of that old winter. But moody March weather does not stop lambs from being born and sheep from needing shearing. We are at the beginning, I would say, of lambing season and shearing season. Piles and piles of wool many bags and bales full of freshly shorn wool are about to be filling up barns, basements, garages, and (laughs) anywhere you can find room, basically, with one big fat question mark hanging over them. What am I going to do with all this wool? It's a question every fiber farmer has to ask after shearing, what am I going to do with this? So let's get into it. I was really inspired to create this episode because of several conversations I've had recently that kind of serendipitously ended on this same question. What do we do with all this wool? And the question really isn't focused on yarn because so much of the wool that's being produced isn't the kind of wool that you would even use in yarn. 
And the question mark hanging over those bags and bales remains, what do we do with all of this? That's the question I want to get into on this episode. I want to unpack all the ideas and opportunities in those bags of wool that may not be related in any way to knitting yarn or yarn at all. So if you are like many other fiber producers out there, small flock farms who have less than 100 head usually, um, more like two or three animals, this episode might be really helpful to you. And I hope that those of you listening, if you know somebody who would find this interesting or helpful, please pass it on. I learned a lot while making this, and I hope you will too. Okay, so it's quite common for shearing to take place a few weeks before lambs are born, maybe six weeks before. And there's some really good reasons for this. The obvious reason is that giving those pregnant ewes a haircut a few weeks before they give birth keeps them and their new babies clean and healthy and gets all that long, dirty wool out of the birthing process was also a way of diverting the use energy towards birthing. The strain of giving birth and the energy required of the ewe in the final weeks leading up to giving birth is enough to divert their energy away from growing wool and actually create a tender or a weaker spot across the fleece, across the whole body of the ewe. And shearing just before that intense period of time for the you means that the stress of giving birth won't affect the overall quality of the fleece when you shear it 12 months later. And it also gives that lamb all of mama's energy. Another good reason to shear in the spring just before lambing is that it allows the ewes to enjoy a shorter haircut in the warm summer months and a full warm covering in the fall and the winter. Typically, sheep are shorn once a year, but not always. And there are a lot of reasons why farms might choose to shear at different times of the year or even multiple times of the year. Each caretaker has to be thoughtful about what's best for their sheep, for their farm, for their lifestyle. And this can sometimes mean maybe where the farmer even does the shearing themselves that, and I've seen this happen, instead of doing all the shearing in one day, it's just too, that's too much. They manage it by doing one sheep at a time over a longer period of time. So shearing might happen over several weeks or months instead of all at once. Um, also, not all farms are in it for the lambs, and this could change your reasonings as well. So no matter when the shearing happens, although it is common for spring to be where the bulk of wool shows up, no matter when your shearing happens, that big fat question mark that every fiber farmer asks <laughs> is still hanging over the barn. What am I going to do with all this wool? Now, this is the perfect point in the conversation to talk about why um, we're focused on small batch wool on this podcast. So if you are a farmer and you tend sheep, let's say you have 10 animals, okay? The average, depending on the breed, of course, you're going to get a different number, but the average weight of an individual fleece is about 10 pounds. And that's skewed heavily to the finer wools, 
that are bred for volume because that is mostly what we see out there. But smaller animals like Shetland and Icelandic, maybe you only get three pounds or four pounds. There's a huge range. So I'm just saying on average, if you have 10 sheep, maybe you get 100 pounds of wool per year. What can you do with 100 pounds of wool and what does that even look like? How much is that? Well, one fleece often fills a typical household garbage bag with some room to spare. So think of 10 full garbage bags sitting in your garage or in your driveway. And if you have smaller animals, maybe you can fit two or three fleeces into one of those and you have three full bags or whatnot. Okay, just to help you imagine what that quantity is. Now, let's say you're a farmer that has 100 sheep or 200 or 500 or 1,000 The higher the volume that you're dealing with, the less tolerance you have for keeping that wool on the farm. You've got to get it out or it's going to be in your way real fast. A thousand pounds of wool looks like bales. Bales are typically these days made out of nylon and they're called nylon packs, wool packs. They're rectangular um, bags basically made of nylon And a hydraulic press is used to compact the freshly shorn wool in these bales so you can get as much as possible sealed up in one of these bags. Uh, So maybe they hold 300, 400, 500 pounds. I've seen bales of raw wool that hold 200, and I've seen bales that hold 600. So there's a huge range in what a bale can hold. But if you're dealing with 100 sheep or more or maybe 1,000 sheep, then you're dealing in bales, not bags. Big bales of wool have to be moved by trucks. So if this is you and you have 10 or 20 bales full of wool, you've got to schedule a semi to come and pick it up and take it somewhere Or you've got to schedule with a local wool pool, if you have one even, anymore to come and pick it up. Those bales are most often sent off to a warehouse that you can think of like a distribution center. But all those bales from those warehouses are going to end up in an auction where domestic and international buyers are bidding for the best price on different grades of wool. Before a bale can be sold at auction, it has to be tested and proven what quality it is in there. So the warehouse is also involved in getting those bales graded and tested by drilling out a core sample and running it through microscopes and micrometers and taking averages and making an assessment based on data to determine what actually is in the bale and what it's worth. These opportunities to move wool are not accessible to the small flock farmers. And that is exactly why we are having this conversation, because so much wool in smaller flocks is going to the dump, being burned or discarded or just piled up over the years. It's not uncommon for me to hear from farmers who are just desperate to get rid of the last three years worth of shearings. And Uh, Let me tell you, that's a terrifying question. I don't know how to help you all the time when there's mystery bags of fiber piled up in the garage 
from years and years worth of shearing, but I have been there, I have gone there, and I have looked through those bags, and wool does keep, unless it gets infested with mice or moths or other kind of weird things. It keeps. The lanolin is a preservative for the wool, and it can hold for a really long time if it's stored correctly. The opportunities for moving wool is different for large-scale producers as it is for small-scale producers. For smaller flocks, the natural inclination is to seek out a cottage mill that accepts wool in small quantities. And of course, that's what you would naturally think to do because if you're going to make anything out of wool, it's got to be washed, possibly carded, maybe even spun. And after all, isn't that what cottage mills do? Well, yes, that's exactly what we do, but really, it isn't that simple. And anyone who has sent wool off to a mill in the past five years at least probably has encountered some of the bottlenecks and frustrations that cottage mills are faced with these days. I say it isn't simple. I mean, it's not simple in the way that dry cleaning is simple. You drop off your laundry, you come back a little while later, pay somebody and take home your freshly cleaned and pressed clothing. You don't have to think about anything in the process. That's what you pay the dry cleaner to do. Well, cottage milling raw wool into finished products is not that simple. First of all, you have to know exactly what you're sending out to be processed, and that's complicated. It becomes a huge risk on the mill to work with clients who really don't know what they're sending off, because what if that fiber is tender or matted, or maybe it's a tease water cross and the client wants you to turn it into a soft, fluffy, bulky yarn? (laughs) Tease water has no crimp, and it does not do bulky or soft, usually. Knowing what you have and establishing a line of trust between you and your mill about what you have and what products you're making with it, that helps a lot. That goes a long way in helping things move smoothly, but it takes a long time to build up that trust and vice versa. Not knowing what you have, just wanting to drop it off and come back later to pick something up, as Sir Topham Hatt would say, often creates confusion and delay in such a labor-intensive task. (sighs) Makes it sound discouraging. But another reason custom processing is not that simple is what I call the vertical dilemma. When you're taking something from raw to finished form, That's vertical work. You're starting with the raw material and you're turning it into something that you can sell direct to a customer. The cost of everything that comes in, whether it's the raw materials, the labor, the fixed expenses of operating a mill, they have to be paid for by the products and services coming out of the mill in a reasonable amount of time. With, of course, money left over to save. That savings or profit ultimately is what makes the endeavor sustainable. Something I say to myself all the time in response to this vertical dilemma is this, just because you can doesn't mean you should. Here's a look at the vertical dilemma from the perspective of a farm that maybe produces 100 pounds of wool annually, so maybe 10 sheep averaging 10 pounds each. Okay, I'll whip you through some math here real quick. 100 pounds of wool annually might yield 40 to 50 pounds of finished yarn. These are averages. 
that lands in the ballpark of 200 skeins of yarn wound off at 100 grams each. Is that farmer going to be able to sell 200 skeins of yarn at their farm stand? A farmer's market? Among friends? How much work do they really want to put into selling those 200 skeins? Not everybody wants that job of marketing and selling their yarn on top of all the other farm chores that they're already doing. If a farm can't sell their yarn in a timely manner, they might not send their wool back to the mill the next year, even if they really like the yarn. Because if it's not turning a profit in a reasonable amount of time, it's just not sustainable. Just because you can doesn't always mean you should. The vertical dilemma for a cottage mill is that sales from custom processing adds up to less than or equal to wholesale pricing on the most labor-intensive task of all, taking raw to finished yarn. It's just not profitable or, in my opinion, sustainable to offer wholesale pricing to your entire customer base for services that leave you with very little time left over to work on any other projects. Unfortunately, that means, and we see this everywhere, that quite a few mills have reached their limits and now have signs on their websites and on their voicemail saying, not taking new orders. Which brings us back to the original question on the minds of so many farmers right now. What do I do with this wool? Let's tap three possibilities for wool that might be a good alternative to going through a cottage mill. Number one, sell your raw fiber. Just sell it raw. If you know you have high quality spinning fiber in your flock, this might be an excellent path to consider. You still have to do the work of setting up an online shop and finding and marketing to the right customers, but the work you do to breed a healthy flock and tend the soil can be enough. You'll have to be really good at skirting and grading your fibers too, so your customers will trust you and tell their friends and come back for more. And if you have any leftovers, or if your premium fleeces are only a percentage of your whole clip, you might be able to find a commercial or wholesale buyer in the fiber arts community to sell your surplus before the next round of shearing. Get paid for what you love, plain and simple. Sell it raw. Here's another idea. Fertilizer. This is such a fascinating idea to me, and I admittedly have a lot of questions about this myself. We've mentioned it here on this podcast before, and I've explored it in a lot of different ways. I'll tell you what I know, but please just know that I'm still learning. I'm not an expert on it, and I, I bring this up as an opportunity for you also to learn and run with it and figure this out if it interests you. So there are two ways that I know of to make fertilizer from raw wool, a liquid form and a solid pellet form. We've talked about the liquid fertilizer here before. It's the easiest thing in the world. You just soak any raw fleece in plain water for I'd say eight to 24 hours. The liquid waste is a gold mine of nutrients for your soil and your plants. You definitely have to dilute this fertilizer tea, this wool tea or whatever you wanna call it. And I recommend starting with one part tea to eight or nine parts water in your initial test to see what's right for your plants. It can be quite concentrated. I have overdone it in my own testing, so I know it can be quite concentrated, especially for potted plants. So just go easy in the beginning while you're figuring that one out. 
The downside to making liquid fertilizer from your wool is that you still have the wool. You gain this rich, nutritious liquid fertilizer, but you're left with the wool. As for solid pellets, well, you can pelletize lots of things, and raw wool is one of them. And I confess, this is a topic I'm still learning about, and I'm very curious about the mechanics. But I understand that the fibers need to be short enough to separate and compress into those little pellets. And I suspect longer staples would need to be chopped or somehow cut up. But if the wool is already short or tender, or if you're selecting fleeces that are already short, that hardly seems necessary. Relying on its natural attributes, wool helps regulate soil temperature and moisture levels, as well as delivering slow release of nitrogen, phosphorus, and potassium, among other things. It's a genius natural fertilizer. And there's an opportunity here for anyone out there interested to explore the possibilities, not just for the family garden. What about commercial farms, orchards, and rural communities who are already producing wool and wondering what to do with it? Maybe it can stay close to home and help fertilize the next crop of flowers, fruits, and vegetables. I would love to see pelletized wool taking a place in our gardens and on our farms. Using raw wool as fertilizer seems to me like a great way to make use of that wool that hardly seems good for anything else. A third alternative use for wool could be for padding, cushioning, and insulation. One good thing about this option is that the grade or the color of the wool hardly matters at all. Wool brings to the table the amazing properties for an application that will not be seen. Keeping drafty areas warm and pillows and cushions soft and cozy. This avenue does require the wool be scoured and possibly carded, but the labor is less intensive and there's much less risk of the fiber not being up to snuff. So you might find it a little easier to get these services done and faster too than taking wool all the way to yarn. You might even end up with carded batting that could be felted into sheets and felted sheets can be used for all kinds of things as well. Each different finished product represents a different avenue of work, research, and testing that needs to be done. You need to find the audience that's interested and willing to pay a premium for the thing that you're making. Yeah, that's a huge risk, especially in the beginning for someone to figure out how to get these great products into the right hands, both profitably and sustainably. It takes a lot of research and development to create a new product and find its target market. Time, patience, lots of mistakes. But I'm telling you, the opportunities are there. There are loads and loads of uses for wool. Not just these three, but I absolutely believe it's worth exploring more ways to move smaller quantities of wool that aren't destined for a cottage mill. That kind of makes it sound like I'm discouraging cottage milling, and I'm absolutely not. I'm just saying, just because you can doesn't mean you should. And cottage milling is the, the natural assumption that that's what you have to do in order to use wool. And I think I'm saying there's other opportunities out there that we have yet to explore in a modern context. 
the enormous volume of wool that can be processed does not always add up to an enormous volume of wool that can make a profit. If you're someone who's considering to buy a mill or starting up a mill, I tell you as a friend, let that sentence worry you and struggle with it in your own way until you can answer for yourself in numbers, how does this make a profit? Just because you can doesn't always mean you should. You should find avenues that are right for you and for your family. You should be well rewarded for your investments and your hard work. Take your time to choose the interests that line up with how you want to spend your time. And then learn everything you possibly can about it. Study, practice, make mistakes, talk to people, and then bring your skills to the table. Okay, here's three opportunities that I see for somebody out there to make a difference in the small batch wool community. Number one, simply grading and distribution. Knowing what wool is out there and moving it around. There are opportunities for moving wool, as I've said, in larger scale and bales. And if somebody out there was interested in collecting it and grading it, you could move these smaller quantities of wool in a larger scale. But that's a job, and somebody has to be willing to do that job. Grading and distributing could also be a job that supports maybe a scouring facility, possibly a pelletizing operation as well in that scouring facility. Just washing wool can be a full-time job. And there's enough wool in our communities that it could keep you busy for a long time if, as we've said, you have an opportunity to sell it. If you have an opportunity for selling clean wool, then you might have an opportunity for doing the work of washing it. That is no small task. Becoming really good at washing wool and doing that in volume implies a lot of other things that we're not really going to get into at this point. I bring it up simply as an opportunity that I see that's out there. If somebody's interested and motivated and inspired to take that on, it's something worth exploring. And finally, just carting it for insulation, for cushioning, for batting, for bedding maybe, for felt. Just carting and preparing carded wool by itself can be a full-time job if you have the outlet to sell it. And an outlet for something like that, it might be retail customers, but it might be also another processing facility that is making yarn or felt or other finished products. So something to consider. Does carding fit into your fiber community? And is that an opportunity? I imagine some of you out there are rolling your eyes right now saying, yeah, that's pretty unrealistic. (laughs) And maybe it is. And maybe it isn't. These are conversations that I think are worth having and ideas that I think are worth exploring. And if it hasn't worked or if you've been frustrated with these ideas, why? What is the roadblock and what is our next step forward? The way we use wool and produce wool, the context for wool in the United States and peers, possibly around the world, has changed dramatically in the past 50 years. Did you know it only takes one generation for the knowledge of how to use wool to be lost? 
How long does it take for us to change our own perception of how wool can be used? How long does it take for us to imagine new ways of using wool or learn new expectations? I just think it's worth thinking about. Everyone who cares about the sustainability of wool, handcrafter or professional, has the opportunity right now, today, to relearn, adapt, or invent ways to preserve what we know and love by making it new today, by making it relevant to a modern context. That's not an easy thing to do. It's overwhelming to even try to understand our modern context. On a whole, perhaps. But not really when you focus in on that one idea or that one question that's been tickling your brain for a little while. If you focus in, you'll find it. We all have one. There's a thought on the top of your mind that's been there for a while. We can build lasting, truly sustainable communities, businesses, relationships from just one tickle of an idea leading to a step in the right direction, leading to mistakes that teach you something new, leading to new opportunities. We can't build those kinds of things in isolation Though we do need to listen to each other, hear each other's questions and frustrations, understand each other's excitements, interests, in order to build on our common interests together. I, for one, am here for all of it. I'm here to learn. I'm all in. And with that, I'd like to invite you one more time to join our new online educational community at schoolofwall.com bringing together handcrafters and professionals dedicated to sustainable small batch wool. If you've got ideas, stories, questions, or you just want to meet your people, come visit theschoolofwool.com. You'll find us chatting about this episode under the topic called Modern Wool Open Mic. Come on over. Let's hang out. And I can't wait to hear what you have to say. And that does it for this episode. Please, please, please tell your friends and local fiber arts groups and guilds about this episode. Help us spread the word about Modern Wool. And you can show your support for Modern Wool by shopping sustainable small batch yarn, roving, and dyes on our website, AbundantEarthFiber.com. I'm Lydia Christiansen. Thanks again for listening. <laughs>